This morning's scripture comes from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 68. It says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You may be seated. Amen. Awesome. Well, guys, our Advent season, as we've talked about here so much, is uh, really an effort and a hope to help set our, our minds and our hearts on, on what is more true than I think we, we realize, and that is that we ache for something that we do not have. And that's a statement that's really hard for, God bless us all, spoiled rich Americans to grab, right? Um, we ache for something that we do not have, uh, is a statement that I, I doubt we understand, right? When we think about the places we live and the things that we enjoy, it's hard to imagine a life of aching for something that we do not have, of yearning, right? Because for most of us, we just have. <laughs> it's not about aching. It's not about waiting. It's not about hoping. It's not about yearning. It's just simply having. And if I don't have it today, I'll just go get it tomorrow, right? That's kind of our, 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 our ethos. It's kind of the, the, just the air we breathe in this country. Um, whether you've got the money for it or not, or, or should have it or not, none of these things really ever matter for us. We just simply have. And so it's of utter importance for us to, to, to focus on what so many people for so many generations and centuries even experience. They just, they longed for, they hoped for, they yearned for something that they did not have. And so that's so much of what we are seeking to uh, remind ourselves of through our Advent readings and through this time of, of lighting candles and remember. So just like looking at the Advent wreath is just a visual reminder of like, we're waiting for candle number three. It's not lit yet. We're waiting. We're we're like there's something in us that says that whole thing should be lit, but it's not yet lit just to kind of give us a picture and remind us of what's true in our hearts. Uh, I'm super thankful that I woke up this morning and had a voice. Uh, the whole last week, I haven't had much of a voice. been sounding kind of like a grizzly bear, so uh, praise God for that. And if you're feeling under the weather, understand there's all sorts of that happening right now. So uh, as we pray here in a minute, we're going to ask God to... Uh, help heal our bodies, because I know there's all sorts of people sick uh, right now. So um, I want to I pre uh, precede our reading before I usually read again our text, and so I want to precede our reading 
a little bit, and then I'll read our text again, uh, the text that Jason just read. Um, but to do this, I just kind of want to frame for us what, what's probably uh, 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 something we all know, so some information, a story that we all know. But I just kind of want to frame it so that we continue uh, to, to get a picture of what's going on in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, uh, because this is the breakthrough, right? Like this is the parting of history that we're experiencing in these two chapters of Luke. You've probably, if you're a Christian, have read it a few times or you've heard these things read at Christmas time, so it might be kind of normal uh, to you. Uh, and again, that's kind of a, a thing we need to work toward is like, let's, let's bring ourselves to this historical moment and recognize how significant this all is because God is, is, is changing all of history uh, in the midst of these stories. And so last week we talked about Mary. Uh, we read through and, and talked through uh, Mary's song of praise, which is called the Magnificat uh, by, by many. And then today we're looking at Zechariah's prophecy, uh, which is uh, referred to as many by the Benedictus. And Zechariah was uh, John the Baptist's dad. Uh, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. He, he wasn't a Baptist, actually. He was just a dude. Um, so uh, John the Baptizer. And so if you, if you go back to Luke 1, if you have a Bible, um, or if you've got a, an app, you can page back through that. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to read another section out of Luke 1, so the words will be on the screen as well. And by the way, if you need Bibles, we've got a bunch of free ones back there. But at the beginning of Luke, um, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold. And it's foretold to this guy named Zechariah. And this guy named Zechariah is a priest. Uh, which means he kind of had like this this um, job every so often to go up to the temple and, and to, to conduct some of the ceremonial acts of worship on behalf of the people of Israel. He would go in and whether it's light the candles or break the bread or, you know, uh, offer the incense, the different things that the priests would do in the temple. So it's Zechariah's time to go to the temple, uh, something that he prepared for all of his life. He's in the family lineage where his dad did that, and his granddad did that, and his great-grand did that. You know, they all did that thing. And so he's continuing to do what he always knew he was going to do. And so one day he's in there chilling and an angel shows up which is not normal for temple worship. That was very abnormal, especially in this era uh, at a time when it had been some 400 years since even a prophet had spoke, right? And so this is like, we talked a couple of months ago about a desert season. Remember in Psalm, we talked about like kind of that moment of just yearning where, where it seems like God is absent, kind of a dry spell or a desert season. I mean, Israel was in the desert of all deserts, right? Like Sahara junk. This thing was huge. It was long lasting. They had no water from God, so to say. And so he walks in and boom, an angel shows up. And at this point, Zechariah is old, like really old. Like he's thinking he's kind of like Abraham because he still doesn't have any kids and he's well into his age to the point where he thinks they're beyond being able to have kids. And this angel shows up and says, you're going to have a son. And he's like, <laughs> no. Right? And the angel just kind of confronts him in his disbelief because he full-on does not believe the angel. And at that moment, the angel says, you're not going to speak until you see this promise fulfilled. And so he comes out, finishes his, his worship service, his, whatever he's doing there in the temple. He comes out, um, and, and he can't talk. And everybody's like, whoa, what's going on? Right? It was like the first little hint that things are changing. It was just this little, little glimpse of what's going on. And so then we see that after that, of course, his wife Elizabeth uh, does get pregnant. And then, like we saw last week, there was uh, the moment where um, Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, and there's this really cool encounter. 
in that whole situation. And so I want to read just a section here then. Uh, this is the continuation of the story. It's in Luke 1, 57, and I'll read through verse, 30, uh, through verse 66. It says this, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives had heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, because he's not talking and apparently not even hearing at that point, so they're trying some sign language, inquiring what he wanted them uh, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered, right? Another hint at this amazing historical moment that they're living in. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, dot, dot, dot. That's what we're about to read. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so we have this historical moment continuing to mount. The crowd knows, everybody knows about that time in the temple when Zechariah came out and couldn't talk, that that, that news is spreading. And then this spectacular uh, reality of, of, of not just Mary, the virgin girl being pregnant, but now this old woman who's kind of beyond her years that she's bearing a child. So all of this amazement is happening. And then all of a sudden this kind of spooky thing goes on, right? Where they're like, she's like, hey, let's call him John. And they're like, that name doesn't make any sense in your family. And then Zechariah says, yes, call him John, right? And so this all is leading them to just this amazement at what's going on. And Zechariah in the middle of this pauses and he, he, he declares what we're going to walk through today. And that is uh, the Benedictus, which starts in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So let's read that one more time, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig through this and see the glorious truth of the gospel. Here we go. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, verse 68, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray for our time this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, do not want to just come to these days um, as commonplace, um, we recognize uh, as we look at this kind of historical moment uh, in the beginning of Luke that you were up to something, bringing to fulfillment long promises made ages prior, and that God, you were doing for this people and ultimately for us too uh, something that 
would never be repeated in all of history. That you, God, eternal, forever existing, without the need of anything ever, came to earth as a man. Not just a man, but even as a baby. God, there was surrounding this period of time so many uh, beautiful indicators that you were up to something new. And God, we often take these things for granted, and I pray that you would just uh, firm up in our hearts the, the splendor and the glory and the beauty and the wonder of God with us. That God would meddle, so to say, in the affairs of man, that, that he would enact his work among us is something to be marveled at. So Lord, would you take our hearts to the place like little kids right now at Christmas, just in wonder and in amazement and in hope, because so often we're just trudging through the humdrum of life and we have none of that in us. God, I confess, I have none of that in me. God, as we look at this song from Zechariah, would you set in us just wonder and amazement because you have done great things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to go toward the end here and then back up to the beginning of this song. In Luke 176, uh, this is where kind of the... Benedictus ended, and, 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 and Zechariah, I, in my head, I, I see him there at the birth of his child, and I, I see him lift this baby up in the sky, right, screaming little child, and, and, and I, I just imagine him making these declarations with the baby in the air. I don't know why, but I guess it's Lion King. I'm not sure. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so Zechariah is proclaiming John to be the one who would come before the one, right? And this one was prophesied ahead of time, just like Jesus was prophesied ahead of time. And so to see them both emerging at the same time is a double indicator of the fulfilled promises of God, right? And later on, in the Gospels, Jesus says to the disciples, and if you guys can hear this right, I am, uh, or he was, John, was the Elijah to come, right? And so he affirms that John the Baptist was indeed the forerunner, the guy who would come and get the way ready or prepare the way for Jesus. And so this was John's role. This was his job as a prophet. He was going to go before Jesus, and he was going to announce his arrival. He would make ready the way of the Lord. And essentially what that meant for Israel at the time was to wake them up to the realization of their sin and need for a Savior. That's what John came to do. That's why he baptized. What is baptism? Baptism is a cleansing ritual that says, I'm dirty and I need cleaning, right? Baptism recognizes water can't clean me. <laughs> I'm not clean enough. There's something dingy in my soul that needs to be cleansed. And the Jordan River is not clean enough to wash my soul. And so it was just a preparation of the way for Jesus to come and say, here's what will cleanse your soul. It is me, I am the one, right? And so that was John the baptizer's job. And so Zechariah is making this declaration because it was his job to prepare the way 
for the Lord to come. And then, it, and then we know that it is the job of Jesus to do all of the work that was necessary for our salvation. And we see here then that he says about his son that you will go and prepare the way before him and that you will give knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. Right? And for a lot of us, when we talk about salvation, when we have conversations about the gospel, we, we, we contain the entirety of the story in that segment of, of, of this, of this uh, Benedictus. We say salvation is being forgiven for sins. Done, right? That, that's how we say the salvation story or the, or the gospel message. And while that's absolutely true, right? Salvation is being forgiven of our sins, being saved from the penalty of our sins because Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for us. So now we take his place as a rightful, perfect son instead of the child that we are, the broken, messed up, rebellious one. We, we trade places with Jesus. That's absolutely true about the gospel. We see here that we've got all these verses preceding that declaration about salvation that also unfold for us what is the gospel, this is such a cool prophecy because it shows us all that God is doing through Jesus' coming. It shows us the fullness of salvation. It shows us that the gospel is comprehensive, as Jonathan Peddington says. And I'll read this quote. We often think of the gospel message uh, as the message of God legally forgiving our sins, that is, justifying us uh, because of Jesus' work on the cross. While this is true... Zechariah's song shows us that the gospel is even more comprehensive. It shows us so much more glory than the amazing glory of the forgiveness of sins. That statement alone is a glory to behold forever that we can be forgiven of the sins. But the gospel story fills the tank even more than that. And so as we walk through the Benedictus, we'll find this all-encompassing nature of the gospel is it that God has forgiven us of our sins? Yes, but it is also more than that. The writer of Hebrews refers to what God has done for us by calling it such a great salvation. And in Psalm 103, it was in our reading, uh, our call to worship this morning, David reminds his own soul. I love David. He talks to himself all the time in the Psalms. He reminds his own soul to remember all that God had done for him. How does he do that? He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Right? He's talking to his soul. Listen, soul, bless the Lord. Why? Because of all the things that he has done. He says, and forget not all his benefits. And so David had a long running list of things that God had done for him. And he's telling his soul, remember that stuff. Remember all of the stuff that God has done. And so there is much to rejoice in because God's salvation is truly a great salvation. And we believe it is something that ought to be remembered constantly. The gospel, it ought to have center stage in all of our discipleship and in all of our disciple making because the gospel is the fullness of all that God has done, that it is the fullness of all that he has given, and it is the fullness of all that he has enacted in the life of the believer. I want to say that again. The gospel is the fullness of all that God has done and is doing and will do even broader. It's the fullness of all that he has given and is giving and will give. And it is the fullness of all that he has enacted and is enacting and will complete in the life of the believer. 
And so the gospel is so much more for us than just the entry door into a, a, a Christian life, right? The gospel is so much deeper and so much wider and so much broader than that, that it, it, it seeps its way into every crevice and every area of our life. The gospel confronts us in so many of our places of disbelief, and it calls us to faith in Jesus. Tim Keller says that we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. But the go- and the gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in, the, in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. This great salvation that has been accomplished for us, given to us, and enacted in our lives, it has past, it has present, and it has future implications. It is not something that just simply erases sins from the past. It's something that deals with sins today and cures sins tomorrow. It has past, present, and future. The gospel is also cosmic in its effect, and it's personal in its effect, and it's communal in effect, in its effect. Often when we talk about salvation being just the forgiveness of sins, that just makes it an individual thing, right? And America has done this with the gospel. Because of our strong individualism, we look at the story of the gospel and we say, that's for me. That's true, but that's not the end. The gospel's for the globe. The gospel's for the cosmos. The gospel's for all creation because it's longing, it's yearning, it's hoping, it's, it's, it's pressed down underneath the sickness of sin and it's waiting to be redeemed. So everything in all creation has application, or the gospel has application for everything in all of creation. And the gospel is also communal. It isn't just about me and my little sins against me and my friend. It's, it's about us as a people and all of our tendencies to sin against one another. It's about the injustices that we as culture and and society put on other people. The gospel is the hope of reconciling all men and all divisions and all brokenness. The gospel is cosmic, and it is personal, and it is communal. And we see all of this on display in Zechariah's declaration here today. So now let's back up to verse 68. And we're just going to walk, we're just going to walk through this because it's tremendous. Step by step, we're going to look at what it is that Zechariah is marveling at here in the Benedictus. So in verse 68, it says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. The glory of the birth of Jesus Christ is caught up in this word called incarnation. Incarnation is an an American or an English version uh, of an old Greek concept, and that is basically incarnate or, or, or in meat or in the flesh. It is the declaration that God now has become a man. And the glory of incarnation is that you and I, in our sinful rebellion, in that brokenness that we feel deep within us, you know that, that thing in you that says, I want to do right, and I keep not doing right, right? And the stuff I don't want to do, the bad, I keep, dang, Stumbling into doing that bad, that, that just, that's the reality of sin, right? And so many of us think sin is big, you know, like we think Hitler and, and you know, Stalin and, and, you know, we think the, the, the sin is just simply not doing the things we know we're made to do, right? Or continuing to fumble along our way into the things that we know we shouldn't do. 
Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's overt. Sometimes it's just simply missing the mark and falling short of the glory of God, as Paul puts it. Sin is given to us because we are descendants of Adam. David said, I'm born into iniquity. It's the reality of our function. And so it's, it doesn't take long for us just to try something consistently over a period of time to realize that we just can't. There are certain things we just can't do. We just can't fulfill. We continually fall short of. And so in this state, in this broken, uh, rebellious, um, just fallen short nature, God has not looked on us and said, yo, sucker, try harder. What's wrong with you? Get your act together. I mean, look at me. I've never done anything sinful. Why can't you be more like me? Right? The incarnation, the truth of incarnation tells us there we were, helpless in our sin, unable to lift ourselves. And what did God do? He came to us. He pursued us. Right? And we see this story throughout, woven throughout all of the Old Testament history that God kept on keeping on even though the people he called kept doing what? Missing the mark, sinning, falling short. And so God's pursuit of us in the incarnation is this glorious truth that says God has visited and redeemed his people. Right? God. I'm not just talking about a guy who kind of has some superpowers and has lived a long time, right? We have to always reconstruct our idea of God when we talk about God coming to us. Because if God's just kind of a guy, he's just, you know, long gray beard, he's got a cane, you know, maybe like Yoda, he can set the cane down and do some mad tricks. I don't know what, mind powers, right? If that's our picture of God, then God coming here to this sin-stained world, eh, wow, that was nice of him. It was pretty cool of him to kind of like an Avenger come and save the day, you know? What a, what a good God, right? That, that picture needs to be blown up in our mind. Like, we got to get rid of that picture of God, right? Because when you look at space, the ever-expanding nature of it, the, the continual uh, expanse of the heavens that are out there, you know, this globe and all that it is and everything glorious that, that it contains is just but a speck on a little line, in the midst of the entire universe. And that was made by God. How was it made by God? By him doing experiments and really trying hard and studying physics and astrophysics and, you know, sitting down for hours and hours on end to try to figure out hydrogen and... Uh, no, he spoke. That's God. He didn't have to figure out how space works to make space. He made space. He spoke. That's God. And not only did he make space, but he made space out of nothing. Right? Like, we, we love being creative. And we love creativity. Right? Like, my favorite thing about our band is they, like, know how to play. Because that's beautiful, and it's art, and it's creative. And we live in the midst of a city that's creating we're constantly creating art. We're creating new business. We're creating new ideas. And God created with absolutely nothing. We create with raw materials. We have to have a body. We have to have substance. We have to have instruments. We have to have a paintbrush or a canvas. But God created out of nothing. This is God, and God 
visited you and me. It's profound. It's profound. And so this declaration about God coming is the foundation of the gospel message to know that I have been visited by God. He has pursued me. I did not pursue him. And because of that, I have seen a great salvation. This visiting of God, according to verses 69 and 70, was as a result of his promise. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This great gospel is the story of a faithful God who always keeps on keeping on. There is no end to his faithful love. His promise to Abraham took somewhere around 2,000 years to complete. Was it because God was slow? No. It's because it was his plan to unveil it and to roll it out in such a manner. There's a speaking of David here and raising up a horn of salvation. A horn of salvation just kind of speaks of strength, the strength being uh, uh, of an animal there in the horn of salvation, that that was raised up by God in the house of David. But it was about a thousand years since David had sat on the throne that Israel waited for its true and great king, right? And so you think about the enduring faithfulness of God over 2,000 years, right? Like when I make a plan and then I start to enact the plan, like at step two, if the plan doesn't go right, I'm like, eh, New plan, right? It obviously didn't work. God pursued his plan for thousands of years. His faithfulness endured through all of those generations. He continued time after time after time to be faithful in the midst of all of that work. And so this great truth of the gospel helps heal our hearts when we're in the midst of the seeming thousands of years, right? When we wonder, will God come? When we wonder, will God save? Will God heal? Will God restore? We can look at his promise fulfilled and we can know that it will be fulfilled again. And that's so much of what Advent's about. To get ourselves into the mindset of those who were waiting thousands of years for salvation. Because where are we? We're waiting. We're waiting. We look around the world and we feel like nothing's getting better. We need a change, and the change is coming. And so we can look back at the faithfulness of God and know that it will come to pass as he promised. Verse 71 says that they will be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This for us might be something a little hard to grasp because, we, I mean, do we have enemies? I mean, dang it, they unfollowed me on Facebook, you know, like there right? Like that, is that enemy for us? I mean, you might have experienced some real uh, resistance, but more than likely you weren't at war. Uh, Most of us don't even understand the reality of living in war. Uh, And so these are a people who experienced the the combat and and the, the, the enemy on a regular basis. And they say that God has saved them. So for us, it might be something difficult to grasp, but the beauty of this story for us is to understand that not only have we been saved from physical harm, but we've been saved from the greater harm, and that is the harm that death ultimately does to those who do not know God, which is to finally and fully uh, pull them away from the opportunity for salvation. And so we know that though we might endure harm, it's possible Uh, that the ultimate harm can never be done to us. Because Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can merely hurt 
the body, but be afraid of him who can condemn your soul in hell. And so we know that we are saved not just from harm, but from the power of that harm and the ultimate destruction that it could do to our hearts. And it's also helpful to know that in the midst of our, 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 our living amongst people, that even if we find people are against us, that we know that what they endeavor to do to us will never supersede that which God is doing for us. And so the purposes that God has for us, the salvation and the plan and the work of God in our lives can never be usurped by any human being. It's not possible. So even if you did have a true enemy, you can say with confidence, you cannot ruin me because God holds me. That's what it means to be saved by God, to be held by him in his hands and to be protected from any harm that anyone could do. And what I think is even greater in this verse is that we see not only does God save us from enemies, but God saves us who were his enemies. Paul says that in Romans 5, that we were enemies with God and God pursued us and he made us his friends. It's amazing. We were at enmity with him, like we said earlier, when he pursued us. So not only has God saved us from our enemies, but he has saved us, his enemies, by loving us and by pursuing us. And all of this, verse 72, is to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God remembered the promise. He held on to the promise. He endured and kept on keeping on to bring us so great a salvation. And so to know the mercy of God is to know that he has kept his promise to generations before to not give them what their sins deserved. And so we know the mercy of God because God has not given us what our sins have deserved. And the whole point of this in the end of um, verse 73 and then in verse 74 and 75 is to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see, the full effect of the gospel at work in us is to recreate in us true humanity, to release us, to liberate us from all those things that captivate us and hold us back and press us down and do not allow us to truly live as God intended us to live. He breaks the power of those things through the work of Jesus so that we might actually serve God. And then, I mean, this is a bold statement to serve God. How? Without fear. Because what is most religion? It's just a fear response. Right? Like if you were in Sunday school, hell's hot, kid. Pray this prayer, you're out. Good. Right? Often religion is just a fear response. I mean, how many times after the accident or after the, the trouble or after the sorrow or after the bankruptcy, do, do people respond by turning to God? That's a great thing, but so often it's, it's based in fear. And here Zechariah is saying, following God has nothing to do with fear. He liberates us from that religious burden to respond in fear because fear says, ooh, if I don't do this, then I'll get whooped, right? Then I'll get a licking, then I'll get in trouble. But to be released by the power of the gospel says, I get to live into this because it is the joy of my soul. 
because it is the recreated nature of me to follow Jesus in life and righteousness and in holiness. Not out of fear that God's going to smack me if I don't, but out of a joy that he's pulled me into fellowship with him to know that I'm restored in a way that I could not restore myself. And so religion says, don't do this, otherwise you'll get in trouble. And the gospel says, you've already been liberated from all trouble. You're free. It's amazing, the transformation, to serve God in holiness and in righteousness. Now, I don't feel holy. Do you? I mean, if you do, that's good. But there's a lot of days you probably don't, right? I don't feel righteous. When I sit down and I try to quiet my soul, that just doesn't happen. Thoughts rage, stir, I'm, I, ah, all that just burden and the, the knowledge of how ruinous I often live my life. So God, in the gospel, liberates us to serve him in holiness and righteousness. Whose holiness and whose righteousness? It's Jesus's. Because he was holy and gladly laid down his life and took on the filth of all of our sins, I can be holy. I can stand before God with a clear conscience, right? A million dollars can't buy that. I mean, a billion dollars can't. A, a clear conscience. My sins are not remembered. Serve God in that, right? Because of Jesus, I walk in righteousness, his righteousness. It's been given to me like a cloak, we saw in Psalms a couple of weeks ago. This salvation is so great. This gospel is so encompassing that it cannot relegate Jesus just to the margins of a religious life. Jesus Christ then, his work for us, his gift to us, then begins to infect and invade and seep into all of the areas of our lives to show us how great a salvation he has accomplished for us. So back to verse 76, where we started. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This concept of light coming to darkness is, again, a little bit kind of past our reach, right? Because light is just so automatic. Like, we spend money to try to get darkness, right? Like, I've got those room darkening curtain things, and it's just still not dark enough. Dang it, right? Like, we spend money to try to get darkness because we need it for when we sleep. But, I mean, you think of, of, of long generations of people once upon a time who were laboring to get light. Uh, it costs them so much just to get light. We're kind of the opposite because light is something that we take for granted. But darkness, true darkness, which we uh, very rarely actually experience, it's a disorienting reality. Darkness is often related with fears. It's connected with anxieties. Darkness is something that when is pervasive in somebody's life, it becomes a, a, a big part of their overall narrative. And in darkness, our lives function at a mere fraction 
of what they could or what they should because we just simply cannot live in darkness. And for me, when I think of darkness in this way, when I think about being surrounded by darkness, I think of two things. First thing is I think of this place called Casa Santo Domingo. It's a, uh, a restaurant and hotel in uh, Antigua, Guatemala, and my wife and I were there on a mission trip once, and the missionary took us to dinner at this place, and we were waiting a long time for our meal, and I was getting restless, and so I stood up and, you know, went to the bathroom, and um, ended up wandering through this this large area. It was like a ru- uh, the ruins of a monastery, um, and, and as I walked through this area, I, I came to this place where I, I was completely disoriented because it was extremely dark. Um, and, and I couldn't find light around any corner. And then finally, I saw just a glimmer of light around this corner. I walked around this corner, and I tried to find a picture of this today or this week, and I couldn't find one. I walked around this corner, and it was this kind of large gathering space. It looked like it might have been the sanctuary of the, the, the monastery at some point. And it was just awash with candlelight because they actually produced candles at this place. And the moment when I saw that light, not only was it architecturally beautiful and, and just relieved my soul, but there was a there was a peace that came over me because I was freaking out. I had no idea where I was. It was completely black and I could not find my way back. And so I just kind of wandered towards this light and found this relief to my heart and to my soul. And I remember that moment. And then I found this guy and he helped me get back to where I was supposed to be uh, and all that. But I, I remember just that feeling of like, I am, I'm in real, real trouble right now. Like, I didn't have a cell phone for a little light instantly. I I didn't, there was nothing anywhere, and I had no, I was very disoriented, and and when I think of darkness, I think of that moment of just being petrified and almost just frozen until at last I saw a glimmer of light in the distance and walked towards that. And so often when we think of darkness, it escapes us, but for me, I remember that. Or how about this, the reality of blindness. This always blows my mind when I think that people live in blindness, with blindness, just utter darkness all the time. And it's no wonder that some of Jesus' most remarkable miracles were those that restored sight to people. Because, I mean, it's tough to operate in our world, but imagine that world without any sort of, uh, you know, handicap accessible anything. Uh, the, The world of darkness that those who were blind and then lived in, that was just catastrophic to their existence. And so Jesus restoring sight to the blind is a perfect analogy of light coming to darkness, of what salvation truly has been and has been likened to throughout all of Scripture, that we have come through the darkness and God has invaded darkness with a great light. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about Jesus as the light coming from within the darkness. He came into the darkness and erupted the light through the darkness. The glory of the incarnation of the Advent season is that God didn't look down on a dark world and just say, light up, right? He invaded into the darkness, that Jesus was surrounded with all the trouble and all the temptation and all the hardship and all of the things that you too are surrounded by. And because of the Holy Spirit empowering him that he was man and God, he lived in that darkness. How? Perfectly light. He was perfect light. And because of that light shining in the darkness, we now have light because we all know that a little light pushes back a lot of darkness. 
So Advent for us is remembering such a great salvation that in the gospel light has come as a fulfillment of the promise of God. He has come to pursue us and love us and liberate us from our enemies and give us holiness and righteousness and life in Jesus Christ. And so our hope is that the gospel of Jesus, that this great salvation would truly be our light and our hope in this Advent season. Amen. Let's pray. God, we often struggle to grasp the fullness of all that you have done, but I thank you, Lord, for just the illumination of Scripture into our hearts to help us see and know and to understand and and to just a little bit more grasp what it is that you have done and, and what this gift is that you have given to us and what is this work that you are doing in us now. It is a great salvation. This light to us who stand in darkness is a phenomenal thing to behold. And so often, God, we take it as commonplace and we pass it by and we pray that, Lord, in this season we would be reminded and that our souls would get a taste of the longing and the hoping and the yearning that we truly have because we need this salvation even today. So, Lord, as we sing, as we worship, as we continue about our our Advent season, would you uh, continually awaken our hearts and comfort our hearts with the light of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.